The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Noble said now, there are certain things that we've left out on purpose because we need to validate the information. That's not to say that anyone should hesitate to call the task force, especially if they've seen a car around that time being driven erratically on an old logging road parked in a farmer's field, or if its driver was acting suspiciously. We assume that whoever took Brooke would be acting in such a manner. From the last time we saw her, by Robert Scott. Welcome back, Murder Bookies. I am your host, Jill. March is here, in like a lion, out like a lamb, as they say. Rawr. (laughs) I'm excited about today's episode 57, Stars Cannot Shine Without Darkness, and The Last Time We Saw Her by Robert Scott, Part 2. A shout out to Diane for her review of the Murder Shelf Book Club. I cannot appreciate this more. Growing the podcast is one of my goals for this year, and five-star reviews help others to find me. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. All right. This almost goes without saying, but be sure to listen to part one, episode 56, before you listen to this one. And in 56, I introduce 19-year-old, beautiful Brooke Wilberger, a Brigham Young University student on summer break, a helpful person on May 24th, 2004. Brooke went over to her sister's at the Oak Park Apartments in Corvallis, Oregon, where Stephanie and husband Zach managed the complex. Cleaning lampposts, Brooke vanished, kicking off a huge investigation and search. Her parents, Cammie and Greg Wilberger, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS, activated their church network with its peak a 1,000 people out looking for Brooke as local church members joined in. Police began looking hard at possible suspects. A prominent one was Sung Koo Kim, 30 years old, a man with a women's underwear fetish who'd been stealing undies from young women's college laundry rooms, including Oregon State, made frightening searches on his computer, suggesting that he was making a list for an upcoming assault and was into kiddie porn. Another was Aaron Evans, arrested for public indecency and assault. There were other attempted abductions and assaults ratcheting up the level of fear in the area, but were any of these connected to Brooks' abduction? Another suspect, 45-year-old Lauren Hugo Kruger, bounced onto the radar. He'd been in and out of trouble since 1985 when he was convicted of attempted rape, sentenced to eight years. But the judge suspended this, giving Lauren five years probation. I know. I know. Less than a year later, Lauren Kruger was charged with kidnapping, attempted rape, and murder, the victim, a jogger. Kruger pulled a gun, dragged her into the bushes, hit her upside the head, but she managed to run. And luckily, a cop happened to be nearby 
checking out roadkill. Kruger fled, but he left his car at the scene with his ID in it. Later, at his parents' home, police found Kruger asleep in the basement with a loaded gun, noose, and rope fashioned into wrist restraints. Kruger served 11 years. Not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, that's for sure. Out of prison, he had not learned his lesson. In 2003, Lauren decided to visit his neighbors, standing outside their full-length windows, masturbating in full view of their underage daughter he'd been stalking. Well, that didn't go over well. He was arrested and got a light sentence. And I have no idea why. Barely out of jail again, Kruger was arrested for a DUI, possession of weed, when he was found passed out in his truck blocking someone's driveway. 2004, a report came in from a person living in Bloggett, a tiny little town less than 30 minutes from Corvallis, that a man in a ski mask was in her backyard. When he began to leave, the husband followed him to the Bloggett country store, where he took off the mask and went inside. The husband wrote down the license plate, and Lauren Kruger was arrested for criminal trespass. Now remember this little town of Bloggett. All of these latest shenanigans occurred around when and near Brooke Wilberger's abduction. February 2005. A previous Kruger attempted rape in Corvallis was uncovered by Portland's KGW News. Lieutenant Noble admitted to the reporter that Lauren Kruger was one of the persons of interest in the Wilberger case, dating back to literally four days after Brooke vanished. The media mobbed the Bludgett Courthouse where Kruger was arraigned with his attorney, John Rich, protesting loudly, just as all of Sung Koo Kim's had. Unlike Kim or Evans, Kruger chatted with the media. He'd had nothing to do with Brooke. He was cooperating fully with law enforcement. Eventually, he was found on video at a car dealership at the time he would have had to be abducting Brooke. So he was not the guy either. Kruger didn't lie low. He's a career criminal. In 2005, Kruger pled no contest to an attempted rape charge stemming from February when he'd broken into a Lebanon, Oregon home, attempting to rape a 15-year-old girl. Her agitated father found this going on, and Kruger, who managed to flee. But his DNA was collected from the sweat he left on the victim's clothes. He also pled no contest to sex abuse, coming from an incident in 2000 where he assaulted a girl under 12. He was sentenced to 220 months at Oregon State Penitentiary. Lauren Kruger's earliest release date is 2023. He was not involved in Brooke's abduction. Attention turned back to Sung Koo Kim, who still could not be eliminated as a suspect, yet there was not enough proof to charge him with Brooke's abduction. In court, before Judge Janet Holcomb, Yoon Kim, his sister, spoke to reporters. Why was her brother being victimized? He was a gentle, peaceful person and a very disturbed person. Judge Holcomb would rule, striking all references to Brooke Wilberger from the Kim case, thus protecting the Wilberger evidence from the view of defense attorneys. Soon Ku Kim's mother wrote the judge a letter explaining that Song had immigrated with the family to the United States when he was four years old. He'd won awards throughout school, 
was never disruptive, didn't drink or use drugs. Her son regularly attended services at the Jehovah Witness Kingdom Hall and had volunteered to help people all his life. He'd earned two degrees in computer technology. A successful employee, he managed 12 direct reports. When Kim decided his real passion was cancer research, he quit his job, went to school, and was doing day trading when he was arrested. The Korean community questioned Kim's bail, objecting to the laying charges upon charges just to drive up the amount as a violation of how American justice was supposed to work. Pressure mounting, Corvallis's Lieutenant Noble released a statement that led Sung Koo Kim off the hook. Quote, it appears right now that Mr. Kim, although he has some pretty strange behaviors and is alleged to have done some outlandish things, there is nothing we can find to connect him with the disappearance of Brooke. End quote. Bail was reduced from $10 million to $2.4 million. However, now Judge Collins ordered Kim to wear an ankle bracelet and for a security camera to be placed in front of his residence while he was on bail. Quote, there are strong public and victim safety issues and the risk of flight that requires the court to take these precautions. End quote. As Brooks' investigation went back to square one, persons of interest were being eliminated. Lieutenant Noble could only request that the public think. Someone might hold a key piece of information, never realizing its significance. Benton County Emergency Services was still looking for Brooke three days a week, numbering in the hundreds of searches since May. Benton County Parole and Probation Officer Christina Bailey made unannounced visits to confirm that sex predator homeless people were where they claimed they would be. Yeah, I didn't consider that group. Hmm. February 11, 2005, a search group headed out towards the town of Tangent, another heading up isolated logging roads near Mary's Peak, acting on old yet unprocessed tips. The orders were, if anything squishes, report it. Don't touch it. It could be a human body. Three searchers rappelled down a ravine and found animal skeletons and old carcasses, but nothing human. However, illegal marijuana plots and meth labs were found, which raised the concern that someone might come out with a gun trying to protect their stash. Psychics were sending in tips from all over the country, too. Now, many police departments refuse to work with psychics, thinking it's a complete waste of resources, but Corvallis Police Department listened to every tip even from the gifted. Many were off base, but one in particular was surprisingly more accurate than anyone realized at the time. In Ohio, psychic Bonnie Wells ran an internet site. Prior to Brooks' abduction on Valentine's Day, Bonnie was contacted by a stranger. This person awoke finding a small silver ring in her bedroom, one she'd never seen before. Since Bonnie had worked with the police before, she wondered if this was some kind of omen. Her sense was that this ring was about a kidnap, rape, and murder of a young woman, which had not occurred yet. And the number three was going to play a prominent role. Three months later, Brooke was abducted. 
with all the other vanishings, kidnappings, abductions that occur in the United States between February and May 2004, Bonnie would contact her emailer after Brooke was taken, knowing this was connected. Later, it was learned that Brooke was wearing a small silver ring with the letters CTR on it when she disappeared. Living out of state, Bonnie knew nothing about Oregon, and she pulled up a map and was drawn to the west of Corvallis, possibly a hidden campsite the abductor had prepared, posting this on her website. An Oregonian woman, Shauna, read the post reaching out. Shauna had her own vision of Brooke being kept in a small building with letters on the side. Shauna got in her car, driving past Carvallis and Philomath, heading west towards the small towns of Flynn and Noon, about 12-15 minutes away. Not far outside of Noon, just past a plowed field, Shauna spied a shed, and on its side were the letters CTR. Now knowing that Brooke's ring had the letters CTR on it, Shauna was floored. Telling a police officer that this shed should be checked out, he explained that this was private property and he didn't have the authority to just go look. Besides, in the Mormon faith, CTR is a very commonplace expression, meaning choose the right. So it's kind of like what would Jesus do in other denominations? Shauna, who's a Mormon, had never seen CTR painted on a building or a shed or anything else. Disappointed, she left. A week later, after conferring again with Bonnie, Shauna went back to the shed and was shocked. The CTR had been painted over. I mean, it may mean nothing, but that is a weird coincidence. So did the shed play any role in Brooks' abduction? We may never know. Quote, but what was true was Bonnie, living so many miles across the country in Ohio, and with no firsthand knowledge of Oregon, was going to be a lot closer in her estimation to where Brooke was than law enforcement could have imagined at the time. End quote. May 2005 was the first anniversary of Brooke Wilberger's abduction. Held in the Cordalis Hilton Garden Inn, Lieutenant Noble spoke at a press conference saying they knew more about what didn't happen to Brooke that day than did and that this was a rare stranger abduction. There were now over 5,000 tips, 350 involving cars. Local Foster Lake had been searched by scuba divers, and a satellite had been utilized to take photographs from space. Step by step, they checked off an area as cleared. Noble stated passionately, quote, Even though leads have dwindled, we're not done yet. Not one day goes by that some work doesn't get done on this case, end quote. Cammy and Greg Wilberger spoke of the impact of Brooke's loss on the family, that beach trips were dampened, that they felt they were leaving Brooke behind. They both iterated that you have to put your trust in God that the case would be resolved. Son-in-law Zach Hansen made a plea to Brooke's abductor, quote, bring her back. You've had her for a year. It's time for you to bring her back to us, end quote. The community just hadn't forgotten Brooke. The bike shop continued to sell Brooke bracelets, over 2,000 so far. The LDS community had never stopped searching and looking, and other churches had signs on their property reading, quote, pray for the safe return of Brooke, a child of this community, end quote. 
the trial of Soon Koo Kim, who had not abducted Brooke, but had certainly made an impact, had begun. In Judge Holcomb's court, she ruled the jurors would hear Kim's remarks made when his family home was searched. He told police that his collection of women's underwear was a hobby and that he purchased them on eBay, now a proven lie. Officer David Brooks testified that he'd reviewed the search and seizure papers with Kim, with him remarking, quote, you can't touch the computers, end quote, which were not listed in the search warrant. This is what helped to trigger a new search warrant seizing the computers, revealing all the explicit documents of torture, rape, brutality, the panty theft case morphing into a more ominous case. Defense lawyer Des Cannell did try to suppress this evidence, but he threw in his hat, withdrawing as Kim's attorney. The why created an explosive ripple across the area. Reported in the Portland Oregonian, Kim had given a letter to Des Cannell asking that Kim's father sneak a gun into him and help him escape. Kim wrote, quote, you have my rifles. They are better than anything the police have, end quote. Oof. Kim planned to have the gun with him when he was being transferred by two lightly armed deputies, Kim planning to shoot his way out of the police transport van. Authorities informed Kim's bail was hiked again. Kim's mother commented to a reporter that her son was very delusional. She is correct. Oof. Entering into the legal arena was Charles Weisman of Hillsborough, Kim's new attorney, who was completely ill-prepared to go to trial at that time. Meanwhile, another attorney, David Park, filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Kim family. They claimed that on May 29, 2004, the SWAT raid of their home caused them, quote, shock, fear, anxiety, humiliation, mental and emotional trauma, end quote, and they were seeking $11 million in damages against law enforcement. All right, when I read that they went in with a SWAT team at 3 a.m., I did wonder if this was a little over the top, since you're talking about a panty thief, but let's see how this all plays out. December 2004. Buried in the mountain of tips was a reference to a green minivan seen in the vicinity of Oregon State University's Riser Stadium parking lot, not far from where Brooke was snatched, with some guy acting weird. Corvallis PD were now just getting to these tips. Lieutenant John Kiefer met OSU Police Lieutenant Phil Zerzin at the stadium to get a sense of the geography. Robert Scott writes, quote, as the two officers were standing there, Lieutenant Kiefer told Lieutenant Zarin that his reports indicate that the green minivan had come from the northwest corner and traveled in a southeasterly direction. Zerzin recalled, as we stood there, just kind of looking over the scene, you could see the roof of the Oak Park Apartments. It was a direct line of sight, and it was kind of that aha moment for me. This was where the van was and a short distance away from where the crime occurred. Kiefer also had that aha moment, end quote. The officers contacted Bob Clifford, the athletic director who had been so concerned when OSU student Jade Bateman was speaking with the man in the minivan. Bob remembered that the green minivan had Minnesota plates. Next, Jade Bateman 
filled the officers in on what happened to her that morning. The minivan, unsettling guy, followed by Diane Mason, both independently recounting how uncomfortable the man made them feel. Zerzan noted, quote, from Diane's location to Jade's location to the parking lot of the Oak Park Apartments was a distance of about 800 yards, end quote. So think 732 meters. Here comes the major traumatic screeching full stop. All right, bear with me, murder bookies, because we're going to leave Oregon and we're going to roll back in time to November 29th, 2004, 5.30 p.m., We are in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I told you this takes a lot of twists and turns. A few days behind the conversation that was going on in OSU's Riser Stadium parking lot, Natalie Kirov, a Russian exchange student, was attending the University of New Mexico, Albuquerque. The commuter rush was beginning as Natalie left her part-time job at a daycare center, hopping on the bus to head home. At her stop, She began walking through not one of the best residential areas that was dotted with lots filled with shaggy weeds and no lampposts, so it is dark. Many college students lived in this inexpensive neighborhood. Then came a hand clamped over her mouth, a body pressing hers, the cold tip of a knife at her throat. Terrified, she heard him say, quote, comply or die, end quote. So Natalie went along with the man's demands getting into a red Honda, thinking, oh my God, I'm being kidnapped, as reality hit. Seeing her abductor now, he was about 30, scruffy, agitated, eyes darting around. Car moving, Natalie took a chance trying to get out the passenger side door, but it didn't open. Don't do that again or I'll hurt you, he shouted at her. And then he ordered her to take off her clothes and throw them in the back seat. Humiliated, Natalie complied. Keeping her wits, a now-naked Natalie pleaded, don't take me far away, I don't know this area. And to her relief, he agreed. He fondled her as they drove, as Natalie's heart sank. Parking, he ordered her to perform oral sex, pressing on her head as she resisted. But it didn't seem to be working. The flaccid man decided to drive somewhere else where they wouldn't be observed. Pulling into a deserted apartment parking lot, he pulled out a crack pipe, lighting up and blowing smoke towards her nose to relax her. He said, quote, if you make me happy, you have a better chance of going home, end quote. Attempting to rape her, the man could not sustain an erection. Frustrated, he tied her up with her shoestrings and scarf and stuffed panties into her mouth, covering her with a coat and tied a belt around her neck. Warning her to be quiet, he got out of the car. As he retreated out of sight, Natalie immediately began thrashing, trying to loosen her bindings, which actually wasn't that difficult. He hadn't tied them that tightly. When she was free, she grabbed the coat, unlocked the door, and ran for her life. Getting help was not going to be easy in this area, as everybody assumed she was a drugged-out crackhead and avoided her. Frantic. Natalie banged on windows, running for help. None came. She ran to a Mexican restaurant, getting odd looks as she spoke her Russian-accented English. Then, the miracle. A car driven by Dara Fink and her daughter pulled over outside the restaurant. They'd noticed Natalie running down the street, 
and Dara knew she wouldn't be out in November without pants for a very good reason. Handling Natalie an extra pair of pants she happened to have in her car, Dara helped Natalie get in. Natalie didn't feel safe, and she was terrified, frantically looking down the street towards the apartment parking lot and saw him getting in his car. Would he come after her? But no, no, her abductor rapist drove off in another direction. Taking Dara's cell phone, Natalie called 911. The first cop on the scene was Albuquerque's police officer, Aragon, with Natalie giving him a very detailed description of the red Honda down to the suction-cupped monkey attached to the rear window. Albuquerque police detective John Romero arrived next, locating the shoelaces that had bound Natalie. Canvassing the apartment parking lot, Romero spoke to resident Zorado Ovido, catching a break. Zorado knew a guy named Joe who drove a red Honda, and he lived in the area. While Natalie was taken to get medical help, Detective Ed Taylor drove up and down the area where Joe was supposed to live, canvassing for a red Honda, and found one with a toy monkey on the back. Going to investigate, a man who matched Natalie's description of the abductor walked over. Detective Taylor asked if he was Joe. No, no, my name is Joel. Natalie had said the man had a knife and a crack pipe. And guess what Joel had in his pocket? A knife and a crack pipe. Joel Patrick Courtney's arrest would trigger a chain of events that would lead investigators back months to a kidnapping, rape, and murder in Oregon. Doing amazing police work, the Albuquerque PD sent out memos to other law enforcement agencies across the country to see if they had any similar cases to Natalie's. Oregon was specifically targeted because they learned Joel Courtney recently lived there. Getting the memo, Corvallis PD, Oregon State Police, and the FBI, now the Brooke Wilberger Task Force, compared information on Natalie Kirov's assault with Brooks. The foundation was starting to look a little deeper. Carvalis Detective Sean Huick called New Mexico Detective Romero, who provided more details. Courtney was willing to risk it all, abducting a woman off the streets during rush hour traffic. Joel had been this bold, and Romero knew he must have done it before. Romero also told Huick that had Natalie not escaped, she'd have been taken to a secluded location, raped, assaulted, and likely murdered. The similarities became so potent, so viable, that the Corvallis PD released a statement. The Gazette Times headline read, Van may be clue in disappearance, the van being a green 1997 Dodge minivan. America's Most Wanted released a program on the Wilberger case, asking witnesses to come forth. And quietly behind the scenes, the police were connecting the dots, which led to one man, Joel Patrick Courtney, now sitting in a jail in Albuquerque. Jade Bateman spoke with Corvallis police detective Karen Stauder, telling her story of the man in his early 30s, blue eyes with short thinning hair, who asked her for directions to the OSU athletic office. Noting this, Detective Huick compared Jade's story with Bob Clifford's statement. 
This had gone down a block from the Oak Park Apartments where Brooke would be abducted within an hour. Then Benton County DA investigator John Chicote interviewed Diane Mason, who confirmed she'd seen a, quote, a newer, cleaner, dark minivan, end quote, with gray interior and tinted windows around 9.30 a.m. The driver had blue eyes, short blonde gray hair, a goatee, and two earrings in his ear. She asked herself, why, if he was lost, did he have the map in his back seat? And uneasy, she had backed away and gone to class. Detective Huick found that Courtney had been arrested seven times in Oregon, one for attempted rape. Something else caught Huick's eye. He had a DUI in January with his arraignment scheduled for May 24, 2004, the same day Brooke disappeared, and Courtney never showed up at the Newton court. Courtney's physical description, 5 foot 11, 1.8 meters, 185 pounds, 84 kilograms, blue eyes, gray-brown streaked hair, mustache, goatee, close-cropped hair, and two earrings in each ear. Wait, hadn't Diane Mason said the guy in the van had two earrings? Uh Uh-huh, she had. Following the Newton court, who spoke to Judge Littlefield's clerk, Nancy Jo Mitchell-Katner? Each day, Nancy Joe arrived at work and checked the voicemails that had come in. May 24, 2004, Courtney had left a voicemail somewhere between 8 and 9.15 a.m. saying he wasn't going to make it in court because he was driving in, with Nancy Joe making a notation in her notebook. Later in court, a recording of the judge also confirmed Joel Courtney's absence, with the judge sarcastically saying, quote, He took a boat with the Lewis and Clark expedition. He probably won't get here until 2005, end quote. (laughs) Nancy Joe also said Courtney failed to show up the next day, May 25th, which caused an arrest warrant to be issued. And then came something critical. Detective Hua confirmed that Courtney's call to the court was made in Corvallis, which put him in town just before Brooke Wilberger was abducted. Detective Huick now looked into Courtney's work record with the Creative Building Maintenance Company, CBM for short, which provided janitorial services for retail shops. Working solo, Courtney was given a dark green work van licensed in Minnesota. Intrigued, Huick checked out the route that Courtney might have driven on May 24th The most direct route from Portland to Newton was through Corvallis. There is a map on my blog, which will kind of help you to figure out where all these towns are. Aware of these new developments, Corvallis PD's Lieutenant John Kiefer met with Bob Clifford to present him with a photo lineup, which included a photo of Courtney, because the one he saw was wearing a red baseball cap. Kiefer covered the top of the heads with his hand, and Bob immediately identified number three, Joel Courtney. FBI agent Joe Boyer spoke with Joel Courtney's sister and brother-in-law, Susanna and Jesus Ordaz, who worked with Joel at CBM. The morning of May 24, 2004, Jesus saw Joel pack up his gray duffel bag and get in the green minivan 
heading off for his court appearance. Joel didn't return for two days. When he got home, Ordaz said that Joel told a crazy story of being kidnapped. This struck Detective Huick, who noted in his report that he had spoken with noteworthy forensic psychiatrist, Dr. John Cochran. Dr. Cochran explained that some perpetrators will make up a parallel story that tracks with the actual crime he's committed as a cover. So it sounds like Joel may have done that. He didn't kidnap Brooke. He was kidnapped. But then Joel suddenly took off in the green minivan with no explanation, showing up at his family's home in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, with his belongings, never telling CBM that he'd quit his job. Almost immediately, Joel and wife Rosie had gotten into an argument with her calling the police who arrested Joel. Once out of jail, Courtney didn't return home, but moved to Albuquerque, where Natalie Kirov was attacked. Wow, he is definitely devolving, erratic, angry, drugging, losing control, impulsive, hunting for prey. Search warrant time. Albuquerque Detective Michael Hughes had previously executed a search warrant at the Courtney home with wife Rosie fully cooperating. Now Hughes was looking for anything that might link Courtney to Natalie Kirov, finding rope and a gray duffel bag, which contained hair ties with blonde brown hair tangled in it. This bag matched with the one the Ordezes mentioned Joel taking with him. Now Detective Hewitt asked, what had Joel taken with him from Oregon to New Mexico? With Albuquerque's detective Mike Hughes' assistance, he filled out the paperwork for the search warrant, which included notebooks, receipts, clothing, rings with CTR on it, and any body fluids that could belong to Brooke Wilberger. Further sharing information on the cure of attack, Detective Hughes told Detective Hewick, quote, Courtney had asked her how old she was when he abducted her. And before she could answer, he said, you must be 18 or 19 years old. And then Joel asked her if she was a virgin, end quote. Remember, Natalie's assault was two months after Brooke was abducted. And there are all indications that Brooke had been a 19-year-old virgin. Had Joel furted this information from Brooke and then asked his next victim, Natalie Kirov, about this, comparing victims. While the search warrants were unfolding, the FBI seized the green minivan. Unidentified hairs, fluids, and stains were being analyzed at Quantico, including that single blonde hair. It would be irrefutably identified as belonging to Brooke Wilberger. Question, what had a missing Brooke Wilberger been doing in Courtney's work van. After all the disappointment, digging, interviewing, cross-checking, false leads, red herrings, Robert Scott presents this multifaceted step-by-step investigation, resulting in Courtney, the full-blown suspect. Joel Patrick Courtney had abducted Brooke. Corvallis Media sensed a buzz in the air on April 2nd, 2005, when the Brooke Wilberger Task Force scheduled a press conference on a significant development for the next day in the large LaSalle Stewart Center on the OSU campus. 
with thongs of reporters gathered. Benton County DA Scott Heiser made the long-anticipated announcement that there had been an arrest. 39-year-old Joel Patrick Courtney was currently at jail in Albuquerque, New Mexico, waiting trial for the kidnapping and sexual assault of a female student. A Benton County grand jury had just indicted Courtney on 14 counts of aggravated murder, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, one count of rape, sex abuse, and sodomy. All this without a body. The maximum penalty for aggravated murder in Oregon is death. As Heiser added, quote, I know you guys are dying to hear all the pieces of the puzzle and the entire story, but it's just not appropriate to answer at this time. As a prosecutor, I play by the rules and I adhere to the Oregon State Bar of Professional Conduct. I play those rules very close to my chest. End quote. Doesn't that sound like the commentary by Chief Fry when the suspect in the Moscow, Idaho homicide was arrested last December? It was frustrating because we wanted to know more, but it is necessary to get an arrest. Brooke's mom, Cammie Wilberger, made a brief statement. Quote, this is not over yet. To come this far, a lot of prayers have been answered. Our main goal remains the same, to find Brooke and see that justice is served, end quote. The Oregon media, having never heard of Courtney or his criminal antics before, immediately tried to ferret out everything they could about Courtney. The community itself exhaled, releasing the breath they had collectively held for over a year. Robert Scott writes, quote, people in restaurants, coffee shops, bars all over the area sat glued to television screens inside the establishments as the news came out about Courtney. Even the waiters and waitresses stopped what they were doing to watch the television. Katie Peterson at Squirrel's Tavern told a reporter, quote, this is the first I've heard that they found anybody. When it first happened, I was afraid to walk around alone, end quote. Squirrel's Tavern owner, Greg Little, related, Corvallis is not immune to this sort of thing. It happened back in the 70s. Ted Bundy was here, end quote. And he's right. Back in May 6, 1974, Ted Bundy abducted and murdered OSU student Roberta Kathleen Parks, called Kathy by loved ones. I speak about her in episode 11, a tribute to the Bundy victims as part of the Phantom Prince trilogy. Listen if you want to know more about Roberta Kathleen Parks and Bundy's other victims. At Cod Feller's public house, employee Grant Stocks commented that he'd seen less abduction posters in the last months. Quote, I don't believe it was because people lost hope. It was more because you have to move on. End quote. Ron Jarvis, who worked at the Benton County Courthouse, told a reporter, Quote, the two biggest things I've observed in this case is the unbelievable dedication that law enforcement officers had for finding this guy. The second thing is the tremendous relief that it's over. End quote. Liz Miller, an OSC student, asked a poignant question. How do you convict somebody of murder without a body? And that question was on the minds of a lot of people. Teresa Hoke of the Corvallis Gazette Times wrote, quote, I got angry because it finally hit me that those secret hopes I held out about Brooke had been dashed. For every Brooke, there are hundreds of other girls and women 
who have been killed by their boyfriends, husbands, fathers, or uncles. We can ask, why Brooke? But we know deep down that it could have been any girl, any one of us. End quote. And a side note in this edition of the paper, Sung Kul Kim was now on his fifth attorney, Clayton Lance of Portland. So who is Joel Patrick Courtney? And why had this happened? The million-dollar question that everyone asks. Born in Panorama City in Southern California, the Courtney family moved to Beaverton, Oregon when he was small. Fun fact. Beaverton is named because there are so many beavers in the area. Haha. <laughs> Paraphrasing from her 2005 interview with Dateline, Joel's sister, Dina Courtney McBride, describes a very pleasant childhood, a great family, lemonade stands, camping, and trips to the beach. Growing up in the Portland suburbs, Joel hated elementary school because he had learning difficulties. In spite his claim to have dropped out of school at age 14, Joel attended both Beaverton and Sunset High Schools. Dina admitted that Joel began using drugs around age 11. Combining this with his terrible temper, Joel wound up in Juvenile Hall by age 15, about the time he developed an interest in Satanism and dark, ominous rock music. Dina was likely one of Joel's first victims. Asleep one night, she awoke to an undressed Joel climbing atop her with an erection, his hand around her neck. She grabbed her clock and smacked him upside the head, preventing herself from being raped. Another cousin confided to Detective Huick that Joel had sexually abused her from ages 12 to 17. The first incident happened at a sleepover at Courtney's with her waking up to find the 14-year-old straddling her naked. Because she was wearing overalls, he couldn't get her clothing off. Another family member's timely visit to the bathroom sent Joel fleeing her room, fearful of discovery. He later warned her, life will be bad for you if she told anyone. In 1983, when visiting her grandparents in Burbank, California, she awoke to find Joel lying next to her in bed, arm around her, touching her breasts. In 1987 or 88, when she was in high school, she was visiting Dina at her home, unaware that Joel was also in town. Taking a nap, she woke to Joel unbuttoning her blouse, but he stopped realizing she was up, leaving the room without saying a word. What the authorities realized, all of these victims were about the same height and weight as Brooke Wahlberger and Natalie Kirov. More about Joel Courtney. In 1985, Courtney pled guilty to first-degree sex abuse of a local teenager in Washington County Court. Unbelievably, Joel got a light 90-day sentence and probation. But he violated parole, failing to pay fines, and didn't return to a low-level work-release detention center. Caught with marijuana, he did another 90 days in jail, probation up to five years. His trouble did not stop. In 1987, he violated probation again, being caught with a controlled substance. Amazingly, he was given an additional three years probation, which he's been basically ignoring since day one. Huge failure here. His probation officer, Bob Severe, eventually realized that Courtney had left Beaverton heading for Alaska, where he worked the fishing season 
and spent the off-season in Mexico and repeated this cycle for the next few years. Now, what he was doing in Alaska and Mexico has been the subject of many law enforcement conversations. Coming back to Washington County in 1991 was a huge mistake for Courtney because he was turned in for a parole violation. Arrested again, taken before the judge, he was given three more years on parole because he hadn't been in trouble in Alaska or Mexico. All right, so from 91 to 94, Joel did his probation with no further problems. And remember, this is a time prior to sex offender registries. Joel settled down, he got married to Rosie, and they had three children, eventually moving to a nice neighborhood in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Neighbor Patsy Atkins told a reporter with the Oregonian that, quote, Rosie's a good person. She works hard and the kids are really nice, very mannerly. My granddaughter plays with the little girl, end quote. However, none of the neighbors had anything good to say about Courtney. A non-entity, he never helped Rosie with the yard work, never played with the kids, didn't wave at the neighbors or interact. He was a zero, a ghost. While the family moved in with Joel's sister, Susanna, and her husband, Jesus, back in Portland in the spring of 2004 is unknown. Jesus vouched for Joel, and Joel got the job at CBM, and the job came with a green minivan. Begun fairly well, by May, Joel was having a rough time at work. He got a ticket, then started missing appointments and not telephoning the boss about this. May 23rd, 2004, which is the day before Brooke went missing, the Ordanzes threw a first communion party in their home. Joel was working, but planned to show up later. Jesus recalled, quote, we stayed there at the party pretty late. There was food and drinks, and me and Joel drank beers and tequila. And if you know a Mexican party, well, there is quite a bit of drinking going on. People started going back and forth to a certain room. I think maybe drugs were being used there, like cocaine. I saw Joel going in there more than once. I don't know how many drinks I had or Joel did, end quote. Jesus says the wives indicated that they wanted to head home around 11 p.m., with both the guys deciding to stay longer. 6 a.m. the next morning, the men got home very drunk. Susanna was pissed because they'd stayed so long, with Joel muttering he had to be in Lincoln County at court in the morning and asked to use the phone to call to say he'd be late. This was the 7.27 a.m. call, one of several calls Joel would make. Then Joel left in the shiny green minivan, wearing the same clothes he'd worn to the party, the same red baseball cap. Jesus would say, quote, Joel didn't come back to the house all of May 24th. He didn't come back when I was home May 25th, end quote. Speaking to Susanna on the 26th, she mentioned that Joel was back. When Jesus got home, he saw that the CBM minivan was dirty, muddy, and knowing the boss would be ticked off, Jesus washed the mud off the outside of it. Both Susanna and Jesus mentioned that Joel had a doctor's appointment. Dina recalled his doctor's appointment, too, because it was the same day as a large children's event she was coordinating. Dina was living at her grandma's house when Joel came by before noon. Dina was immediately concerned about him from the way he was acting, very on edge. Animated, he said, quote, you won't believe where I've been the last three days, end quote telling her his I was kidnapped story about being at a party with people 
Then they weren't there. Then there were some guys with guns and knives. And then Joel said he was hiding in a bush naked, freezing and hungry. And he still hadn't had anything to eat. Somewhere in this disjointed telling, Joel mentioned a blonde girl and someone had a gun. He told Dina, quote, there was blood on the girl and she died, end quote. Now, Dina had no idea what to make of this convoluted tale. Her brother was always lying about this or that, so how much was true, she had no idea. Stressed out, Joel went to get medical attention at the emergency room at Oregon Health and Science University Hospital in Portland, complaining of chest pains. Diagnosis, his blood pressure was stroke level high. Given some medication, Joel was told to rest. Detective John Huick took all of this in and spoke to forensic psychologist John Condon once again. Condon explained that, quote, even stone-cold rapists experience some guilt about what they've done. When Courtney had an acute bout of high blood pressure, his need for medical assistance is consistent with his need to deal with the guilt he's feeling as a result of his involvement with Brooke Wilberger's disappearance, end quote. Uh, some context. Not all rapists and killers are psychopaths who have a stunted amount of empathy, remorse, and guilt. So I doubt Courtney's a psychopath. Terrible guy, horrible, but not a psychopath. It turns out Jesus Ordez had more story to tell. He and his family had gone on vacation with Joel taking them to the airport. Returning June 5th, 2004, they found out that Joel's wife, Rosie, and the kids had gone back to New Mexico. Joel was incommunicado, ignoring calls from work. And Jesus realized Joel had taken the company minivan to New Mexico. So it was up to him to go there and retrieve it and bring it back to Portland since he had gotten his brother-in-law the job. Once he did, Ordez kept using the van for work purposes. So Joel may have intended to lay low in New Mexico. But this is when he and his wife got into a major blow up with their 12-year-old son calling 911 for help. Arrested, Rosie filed for an order of protection from domestic abuse, writing, quote, he pushed me and spoke to my face very closely like he was going to harm me. He was very aggressive. At another time, he intended to kill me by choking me very hard and my eldest son was present, end quote. Order protection granted, she received custody of the children. Joel would have no contact with her by writing, phone, speaking. He could not come within 100 yards of Rosie, at work, at home, even in a store. He'd only see the children at supervised monthly meetings. June 25th, Rosie and Joel were in court where he gave his address as Beaverton, Oregon. Joel was ordered to get counseling for his anger issues and to address his drug and alcohol problems as well, this court order would be in effect until December 25, 2004. Any violation was a crime with Joel subject to arrest. Noted, Joel could use the family's red 1997 Honda Civic with the gray interior and the monkey on the back window when he got a valid New Mexico driver's license. And then my heart sank. Three days later, Rosie filed an application to modify or terminate the restraining order. Like so many abuse victims, she'd been swayed as, quote, 
my husband promised that he's going to try to control his anger, end quote. They both signed the order of dismissal the same day, which was granted without prejudice. If an abuser promises to change, that's fine, but the words must be backed up with action and changed behavior over months and months and months. Make sustained action and long-term behavioral change the only reason to dismiss a restraining order. I could just cry for her. Rosie breaks my heart. As a result, between June 28th and November 29th, 2004, Joel was back living with his family, not far from where he abducted Natalie Kirov off the streets. Now we come to the night Natalie Kirov was attacked with Officer Taylor detaining a man named Joel in front of a red Honda Civic matching the description of her abductor's car. After being treated in the Albuquerque Hospital, Natalie was brought to the police station, identifying Joel Courtney as her attacker. Arrested, they held a grand jury, keeping all evidence tightly controlled behind closed doors. The star witness was a shaky, tearful Natalie Kirov, who recounted the terrifying events when Courtney crossed her path. The grand jury indicted Courtney on four counts of sexual criminal activity, and behind the scenes, the linkage between the cascade of events in Albuquerque, relating back to the beautiful day in May, in a parking lot by the lamppost that Brooke Wahlberger was cleaning. The FBI filled out a fugitive complaint against Courtney, seeking his extradition from New Mexico to Oregon for aggravated murder, kidnapping, and rape. But Joel's New Mexico attorney, Jim Lunin, announced that Joel would fight extradition. Courtney had denied it all. It wasn't him. He refused to leave his cell. And so begins the pattern of disruption and outlandish behavior that he would exhibit for the next five years. Courtney also filed a complaint that he wasn't being allowed access to the criminal law library, hinting that he might want to act as his own attorney. Extradition between states goes back to the late 18th century, and Robert Scott describes this as a gentleman's agreement from one governor to another. And in September 2005, the Oregon governor sent an order to New Mexico's governor asking for Courtney to be extradited to Oregon to face trial in the Brooke Wilberger case. The governor agreed, but not until after the Natalie Kirov trial was complete, and that wasn't expected to take place until spring 2006. So the road to prosecuting Courtney is like one step forward, two steps back. March, April, May. June 2005, a slow, torturous process to create a witness list in the Natalie Kirov case was underway. Courtney's defense attorney actually tried to get Joel out on bail, and fortunately, Judge Michael Cavanaugh disagreed. Then, the defense attorney was arrested for a DUI, and he was replaced by Leanne Kerr. You really can't make this stuff up. Now, Courtney was not going to sit by and let the legal system work. He decided to address the court, calling himself the petitioner. There were hearings after hearings after hearings, with the judge recusing himself at one point. With a new judge taking over, who lasted a week? The case was now in the hands of Judge Kenneth Martinez. 
November 2005, Judge Martinez ordered a psychological evaluation to see if Courtney was competent to stand trial, with the relationship between all the parties hostile at this point. Five months later, Courtney fired Leanne Kerr as his attorney, and everything came to a screeching halt again. John McCall was next up as Joel's attorney. Robert Scott tells us, quote, Speed was the last thing Courtney wanted in New Mexico. With every day of delay, it was one more day he put off being returned to Oregon on a death penalty case, end quote. So keep that in mind. All right, the psych evaluation became a thing. Leanne Kerr had been in contact with Dr. Westfield who said he believed Courtney was mentally ill, but he really needed to do a thorough evaluation. Now, Kerr is no longer the attorney of record, so all she could do was fill Judge Martinez in as it all sank into a quagmire of legalese. By the end of May 2006, finally caught up on all the documentation and files, defense attorney John McCall, are you keeping these names straight? Because I'm not. Anyway, John McCall puts in a request for a speedy trial and requests for discovery based on the 5th, 6th, and 14th Amendments. But speedy was anything but what occurred. Four weeks later, McCall notified Judge Martinez that he was now trying a complicated murder case and had a series of other cases, and he was remodeling his office through June to July. So Joel's trial for the Kirov case was not going to happen anytime soon because remodeling your office versus constitutional rights to a speedy trial, you know, the office takes precedent. All right. So Judge Martinez took this pause to send Joel to the forensic treatment unit in Las Vegas for a psych evaluation. And the DA reports that if Courtney was found competent, the case would be back into the trial queue. But did the psych evaluation go smoothly? Well, of course not. While supposed to be a short, quick event, soon Courtney was ping-ponging back and forth at least three times between the Metropolitan Detention Center and the Forensic Treatment Center, which is like a two-hour and 15-minute drive one way. Joel's mantra? Delay, delay, delay. Frustrated, Judge Martinez ordered Joel to be committed to the Department of Health of the state of New Mexico for an evaluation. Courtney's stalling act went into high gear, and he became more unruly and even less cooperative if that was possible, swearing, acting out, creating chaos. Was he crazy or just acting like it? Spoiler, he's acting. Competency hearings were held through the autumn of 2006. End quote. The drama. It was like trying to walk up a muddy, slippery slope on a steep hill. No one could get any traction, end quote. February 2007, the judge was notified that Joel Courtney was competent, even if he refused to speak to his defense attorney, and they were going to trial finally. Pre-trial hearings went on from February and March in 2007. In addition to Natalie Kirov, Prosecution witnesses were the neighbor, Zerato Oviedo, who knew that Joe drove the red Honda, and Dara Fink, the woman who came to assist Natalie Kirov when she ran half-naked down the street fleeing her attacker. With a tightly scheduled timetable, 
set by the judge. The trial was to begin in September 2007. And in the middle of all this, Rosie Courtney filed for divorce. Good, she got there. In September, jury selection was underway when it was learned that Joel was offered a plea deal, plead guilty, and serve 18 years. In a trance-like state, Joel refused to say if he would or wouldn't take the plea. And I guarantee you, this is not canatonia, but malingering. September 17, 2007, the Kirov trial was set to begin, anticipation thick, with hordes of media, TV trucks, and microphones across the courthouse. And nothing. They learned that Joel accepted the plea deal. This would make it easier on Natalie Kirov, who did not have to testify again about the worst day in her life. This made sure that Joel Courtney admitted to forcibly abducting and sexually assaulting Natalie. And at sentencing, this utter ass played sick, fired his attorney, and tried to renege on the plea. But Judge Martinez was having none of this and proceeded. Addressing the court, Joel said, quote, I have no respect for this court. You are the rudest person I have ever met, and I would spit in your face if I were close enough, end quote. Oh, my God, he's upset because the judge was rude. All right, I laughed my ass off. What an ass. He is sentenced to 18 years. And that concludes episode 57. Twisting and turning, I know. It's amazing. In episode 58, second cast, It's Darkest Before the Dawn, part three, We'll see Courtney extradited to Oregon for his murder trial for killing Brooke Wilberger as the media looks into other crimes that Courtney may have been involved with, kidnappings, missing persons, and murders, with fascinating resolutions. Most importantly, we have to continue to pursue justice for Brooke and guys read the book. This is, it's so important. Next up will be the book, She Married the Green River Killer, second edition an exclusive authorized biography by Penny Wood. Judith is Gary Ridgway's third wife, whose early years were filled with abuse and neglect. Then Judith married the man of her dreams, Gary Ridgway, and they were happy for 14 years together. He was attentive, kind. She never suspected there was a dark side. So abruptly, Judith is thrust into a nightmare, trying to merge the image of her loving husband with him being the Green River Killer, one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. And I will be interviewing author Penny Wood, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening. You can email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out my blog and merch store on Spreadshop. Trust your gut and happy reading murder bookies. Source material, show notes, photographs, snack and drink information. The last time we saw her trilogy is found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena. Lyrics by Otto Harbach. <laughs>